That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Thanks for joining us, however you find our program. And for those watching, and there are many, many, many of you on CBS News Streaming and Paramount+, Plus. just a note. No, I'm not recording a hostage video. I'm in a hotel room in West Palm Beach, Florida. More on that in a second. And for those listening on great radio stations around the country, thanks for joining us, including Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Our guest this week, the junior senator from the Commonwealth of Virginia, Tim Kaine. Senator, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Major, really glad we could talk. Thanks. So uh, I'm in West Palm Beach because of something I'm absolutely sure everyone in my audience has read about, watched. The FBI conducted a search of Mar-a-Lago here in West Palm Beach, former President Trump's primary residence. Uh, Senator Kane, we are recording this the morning of August 10th, so by the time this airs, we may be overtaken by events, but I just want to get not your reaction to the raid, but I want to know from your perspective as a sitting U.S. Senator, if the Justice Department has said enough and been transparent enough about the underlying evidence or the laws that may be implicated by this search. Well, Major, they haven't said a lot, um, and, and that says it correct. We, we have a society where anyone during the middle of an investigation, you're, you're presumed innocent until you're proven guilty. So we don't know whether this investigation is into criminal behavior by Donald J. Trump, private citizen, or Donald J. Trump when he was president, or maybe into the activities of others. And the issue is a warrant is needed to gather evidence that could reflect upon the criminal culpability of others. What we do know is this, the FBI, whose leader was picked by Donald Trump, Chris Ray is not a Democratic appointee. He was chosen by Donald Trump after Trump fired Gene Comey. Um, the FBI helmed by Christopher Ray uh, had to go to a federal court um, and get a warrant uh, approved by a federal judge. This would have been very, very carefully analyzed, both by the FBI, the DOJ, and the judge in issuing the warrant to make sure that the appropriate standard was being applied. So you're right. We don't know much now, but what we do know is this. Donald J. Trump, private citizen, is not above the law. When you are president, you are given immunity from some civil and criminal actions during the time you are president. But that immunity goes away as soon as you return to being a private citizen. And that's one of the things that distinguishes the United States from other countries we say this about ourselves, that nobody is above the law, and we have to, as elected officials, always hold up that notion and try to make it true. But as you well know, Senator, as FBI 
executions of search warrants go. This is, in some ways, similar, but in some ways, very different, in that we've never had this before of a former president. Do you think it's incumbent upon the Justice Department at any level to reveal a little bit more about this just to fill the vacuum of information so people like Trump supporters I met here in West Palm Beach who were enraged by this know a little bit more and have a sense of what this is about? Well, I, you know, I do, I do think you have to let prosecutors and investigators make the best decision for the particular case. You're right. Um, there are people who are enraged by this. Um, I find that tragic. I think to, to be enraged because legal process is being executed against a person, um, you know, should not enrage you. I think it should make you have questions, certainly. But, um, you know, I, I frankly, Major, I see too many elected officials who are out already trashing these agencies. My, my governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, put out a tweet today trashing the Department of Justice, saying this is the same agency that labeled Loudoun County school parents as domestic terrorists. That was a lie. The Department of Justice has never done that. Uh, an, an, an independent organization, the National Association of School Boards, wrote a letter to the Department of Justice about violent attacks on school board members and suggested they look at instances of domestic terrorism. But the Department of Justice never has referred to these instances as domestic terrorism. So when you see elected officials trying to stoke up anger and even potentially stoke up anger that could lead to violence, it makes me really worried. Um, but again, do, do, you, do you on that point on that point, Senator, do you feel this is a dangerous moment? Because on open chat rooms, not just in some of the deeper corridors of the internet, meaning 4chan and 8chan, but in much more public places, Facebook, Twitter, this week, there was conversation among Trump supporters about civil war, about violence. Do you believe that this is a dangerous moment and that the sentiments that that exist and are in some ways stoked by Republican defenders of President Trump are bringing us to a more perilous place. I, I do. Look, this we're, we're right at the fifth anniversary of the Unite the Right attack in Charlottesville. And I think there is a direct line between that violence and the attack on the Capitol on January 6th and now some of the rhetoric that's going on surrounding this, um, this uh, FBI investigation. And look, the, the, the one person who can most uh, bring down the temperature is Donald J. Trump. Um, he claims that it was a raid. He could release the warrant if he wanted to. He, he has the capacity to release information, even if the prosecutor chooses not to because of the presumption of innocence. Donald Trump can do it. He could release the warrant. He could release the inventory of the assets that were taken. Um, thus far, he's not doing that. Instead, he's whining about the FBI persecuting him. That whining is leading to some of the extreme and violent rhetoric. So I would call on Donald J. Trump, private citizen, to try to bring down the temperature and bring down the anger level. He, he will not do so. And again, this is August 10th. We're recording this this morning, August 10th. Those around the former president and the former president himself have suggested that the FBI might have planted evidence. Now, I've been here for the better part of a day and a half, Senator, and I have talked or my producer has talked to one of the Trump attorneys, there were at least two present at Mar-a-Lago. So it seems to me borderline incredible, and I mean that in the classic definition of that word, incredible, that the FBI would plant evidence 
against the former president while his attorneys were present while the search warrant was being executed. I mean, come on. Yeah, I think this is um, evidence of, you know, uh, this is not evidence like court evidence, but to regular people, when you see Donald Trump suggesting that, that tells you, hmm, he's worried about something that they'll find. And he's trying to lay the groundwork for claiming it wasn't really his. It was it was planted. And again, remember, this is an FBI that is helmed by Christopher Ray, who was Donald Trump's nominee to be the FBI director. Nevertheless, there's a truth that is something you're familiar with. I've seen it yet again here in West Palm Beach. I've been to more than Trump, 100 Trump rallies. People who support the former president take this personally. They don't view this as some sort of abstract exercise of American justice. They feel it's a personal attack on him and therefore, by extension, a personal attack on them. And I will tell you, Senator, they harbor, and I'm sure you've met people like this in Virginia, deep, deep suspicions about the federal law enforcement apparatus, about the Justice Department and some of the misconduct later uh, revealed in the FISA warrants related to the Russia investigation. They remember all of it. Mm -hmm. And they believe sort of at their core that there's something corrupt about our system. What do you think about that? Well, they believe that because Donald Trump has told them that is the case. I mean, the, the sadness about this is that Donald Trump's character was well on display before he was president, uh, that he would lie, that he would engage in bigotry, that he was a narcissist, that he would take advantage of people, and particularly people close to him, people who had done business with him and worked for him. That was on display before. And it, it makes me very, very sad to see so many people duped by this guy. And you're right. I have had these conversations, major with Virginians, you know, when I moved to Virginia um, nearly 40 years ago, there might have been a greater percentage of people in my state who would have bought this line. Um, the, the, the thing that makes me feel some degree of hope is the percentage of Virginians that uh, fall for this Trump um, uh, kind of circus has dramatically reduced. Virginians, even Virginia Republicans who would vote for Republicans, they kind of see Donald Trump for who he is. And that's why in his two runs, for president, he did poorly in Virginia, even in state that will elect Republicans. We have a Republican governor, but Donald Trump, Virginia. Hold that thought. Senator Kane is our special guest. Segment two of the takeout coming up in just one moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. For those of you who are just coming onto this show for the first time or early adopters, we have every political perspective on the show, left, right, and center. This week, it's Senator Tim Kaine, junior senator from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, Senator Kaine, um, you are, as I understand it, a sufferer of long COVID. Tell my audience what that's been like and how are you doing? Major, I'm glad to. And I, I would use the word kind of survivor or, or dealer rather than sufferer because um, a lot of people have long COVID symptoms that are very debilitating, 
Mine are not debilitating, but they're very noticeable. So I got COVID in March of 2020 when we were working to pass the CARES Act. Um, I, I had not the case. The symptoms were not those that were being talked about at the time, but I learned pretty quickly when I went home and my wife then got COVID from me and she had a standard case. Okay, this is what it is. We both had mild cases. So within two weeks, we were both feeling pretty good, but I have one little quirk, which is when I got COVID, one of the things I noticed immediately was nerve tingling just kind of kicked in all over my body. I describe it as every nerve has had five cups of coffee or every nerve ending is dipped in an alpha seltzer. And it's not painful and it's not debilitating. It's, it's when your leg falls asleep, that's really annoying. It's not as bad as that. It's just that I can feel every nerve ending just tingling nonstop 24 seven now for well over two years. Um, as I, after about six months of thinking, maybe this will go away, but it wasn't going away. I did see a neurologist and the neurologist said these neurological after effects from viruses, Lyme disease or COVID, they're not the most common, but they're not uncommon either. And so I started to talk about my own symptoms because I was running into so many people who had much more serious symptoms, long COVID symptoms, intense fatigue, confusion, heart palpitations, um, and they weren't being believed. They were being told, oh, don't worry, it'll go away, or here, we'll prescribe you an antidepressant. And they were really feeling a, a great deal of anxiety about this. And so I decided, well, listen, I'm on the health committee in the Senate. Why don't I share my own experience so that people will understand, hey, I'm listening. I understand this. I'm dealing with it too. And more importantly, you'll have an ally in me in trying to find um, research dollars, causes, cures, therapies. Um, so, you know, I just have kind of grown used to the idea that I'm never going back to the way I was in March of 2020. But I do thank goodness that my symptoms are not so serious that they get in the way of me, you know, doing my job every day. Very good. Uh, we were talking about the FBI search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. There's one thread of that I want to go back to, uh, Senator Kane, then we'll get on to some other issues. Another thing I hear, not only from the former president, but more importantly, or perhaps as importantly, from Trump supporters, is what about Hunter Biden? They constantly say, why isn't he being investigated more aggressively? There is a Justice Department investigation. Do you believe that there is something about Hunter Biden's conduct worthy of a Justice Department investigation? And do you think that the anxiety or the anger that Trump supporters feel that he get, meaning their hero, former President Trump, their words, not mine, gets all this scrutiny, but from their perspective, Hunter Biden gets a free pass? Well, well let, let, let's look at it, um, Major. Um, it has been testified to by the FBI that there is an investigation going on in Hunter Biden. Have you seen Democrats come out of the woodwork and say the FBI shouldn't do this? The FBI is wrong to do this. We should be angry at the FBI. Have you seen us, you know, trash the FBI once this became public? No, the FBI has a job to do and they'll do the job and then there will be an outcome. And if there's no criminal activity, there, there won't be a, an indictment, if there is, there could be, but you don't see Democrats trashing the notion that the son of a president is being investigated. Um, but what you see Donald Trump and his followers doing is attacking the very notion that Donald Trump could be investigated. So they're completely, um, they're not analogous at all. 
nobody is above the law. If you're a powerful person, if you're related to a powerful person, um, you're subject to the same laws that everybody is. And Democrats don't question that. But why? And it's not all Republicans who question it either. But why Donald Trump and his acolytes believe he should be above the law is is very, very troubling. So for the audience's benefit, you grew up in, uh, you were born in St. Paul, Minnesota. You lived for a period of your time of life uh, in Overland Park, Kansas. I know a little bit about that because you and I are both proud graduates of the University of Missouri. Overland Park, Kansas, a suburb that uh, got kind of topical last week as Kansas was the first state to have a sort of political litmus test or trial run, if you will, of the post-Roe versus Wade politics. Were you surprised by the results in Kansas and writ large, how do you believe or suspect abortion and the conversation about it will play out in the midterm elections? Um, Major, I was not surprised at the victory, but I was very surprised at both the margin and the turnout. So my my parents and my brothers and their families still live in the Kansas City area, and I'm I'm there a lot. I've spent basically from age two to age, you know, 24 in living in the Kansas City metro area before I moved here to Richmond to marry my wife Anne, who's a Virginian, and. Um, Kansas is an incredibly Republican state. It tends to have a strong tie to the pro-life movement. Um, And this referendum, remember, it was pro-life forces that put this referendum on the Kansas ballot, and they wanted it on the ballot in August for there to be a low turnout, sleepy time in the middle of summer. Turned out it was in the middle of a heat wave. But what they found instead was a massive turnout of Kansans who, when they were confronted with this question, should, and the, the referendum question was this, should the Kansas Constitution, which has been interpreted by the Kansas Supreme Court to protect women's rights to terminate a pregnancy before viability, protection be taken away? And by nearly 60-40, this very red state turned out in force to say, no, the constitutional protection, the Kansas constitutional protection for women making their own reproductive decisions should remain intact. I, I, could, I can tell you, Major, the, the next day on Capitol Hill, this sent a very strong message and both Democrats and Republicans were talking in a very intense way about what this might mean going forward. What do you think it means nationally? Well, I, I think it means that the, that the Supreme Court, which in my view, the Dobbs decision was very, very poorly reasoned. It, it, it ignored 100 years of jurisprudence about what the due process clause means. It ignored 50 years about what the, plus, the process clause means with respect to women's reproductive rights, um, that it, it really demonstrated how out of touch the Supreme Court is with the sentiment of Americans on the legal question, uh, but also probably on, the, on the, the politics of this legal question. So you, you are going to see in midterm elections. And remember, there are other states that are going to have ballot referenda in November. So the the referenda will connect with these midterm elections. You're going to see a set of midterm elections where the question of are women capable of making their own reproductive decisions, which is not only about abortion, it's fundamentally a question about respect for women. You're going to see that as being a driving factor in turnout and in campaigns that might not have been the case had the Dobbs court not ruled as it did. As a result, do you believe and predict the Democrats will retain their slender Senate majority after the midterms? I do. I I do. I think the combination of 
a recent set of accomplishments and the backlash to a Supreme Court taking away reproductive rights that had been relied upon for half a century. I think those will lead Democrats to retain their sentiment. Do you think uh, Democrats will win in Wisconsin? Um, I have not yet seen polling. So we're, we're talking the day after the Wisconsin primary, Mandela Barnes and Ron Johnson. I do know the polling about Senator Johnson's approval rating, which is very low. Um, and I also know enough about uh, the Badger State to believe that even though the state has certainly supported Republican candidates, I think the Republicans in Wisconsin, you know, if I could, if I could characterize them, I, I would say they're a little more don't tread on me Republicans than government make my reproductive decisions for me Republicans. And so I think the, the Dobbs ruling, and remember in Wisconsin, Dobbs striking down Roe and Casey meant that a Wisconsin law that was passed in the 1840s, when women weren't even allowed to vote, much less be in the state legislature, that is now the governing law in Wisconsin with respect to abortion in the aftermath of Dobbs. I don't think Wisconsin voters are going to embrace that. We will have more questions on the politics of the midterms on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout, coming up in just a second. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout, Tim Kaine. Junior Senator from the Commonwealth of Virginia, also, as you might remember, vice presidential running mate with Hillary Clinton in 2016, DNC chair, lieutenant governor of Virginia, governor of Virginia, mayor of Richmond, distinguished political career. Senator Kane, so let me just go down some political questions for you. Uh, some of your colleagues in Congress on the Democratic side have been a little wishy-washy, and some have said they don't think or want President Biden to run for re-election. A, do you want him to run for re-election? B, do you expect him to run for re-election? Um, if Joe Bri if Joe Biden won, runs for re-election, I'm backing him. So I, I don't have any inside intel about what he's going to do. Um, and if I did, I probably wouldn't share it. But I'll tell you, I don't. Um, so he, he has to make his decision. If he runs, I'm going to back him. And look, um, being president is the toughest job in the world. And you, you go through good strokes and downstrokes. In the last couple months, infrastructure bill, gun safety bill, um, leading a very complex effort to take out the leader of Al-Qaeda, al-Zahiri, the uh, CHIPS bill, this um, inflation reduction bill, which is historic in terms of both health care, tax reform, and climate legislation. President Biden and the team around him have, uh, have done some really, really good things. Um, now, he's not a guy who rests on his laurels. He knows a lot of Americans are still suffering. There's inflation. There's other challenges we have, extremism. And so we got a lot to deal with, but President Biden has racked up a set of accomplishments in his first two years as president that uh, that I think are very, very solid accomplishments. If he runs, I'm going to support him. You would acknowledge, though, that this uncertainty is unusual and does stress the uh, Democratic Party out a little bit, does it not? It, it is. I mean, I, I don't think it's that helpful 
for a lot of reasons for people to be weighing in on what they want Joe Biden to do. Let him make his decision and then you can decide at that point. And, and secondly, why speculate about 2024 when we have an existential race ahead of us in 2022? I mean, the, in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, particularly with the Supreme Court saying reproductive rights are no longer a matter for constitutional protection, it's up to the legislature to decide. Okay, well, we're electing the entire U.S. House and one third of the Senate in November. That seems pretty existential right now. Why folks want to freelance their opinions about what should happen in 2024? I don't get it. Um, we got a big one coming up, and then there will be plenty of time to figure it all out. I will say, uh, Major, you're right that the level of angst on the Democratic side is a little bit unusual this far out. I will say it's succeeded by the level of angst on the Republican side. The, the, the Trump effect, will he or won't he? Will other people run? What do they think of Trump? Um, you know, I wouldn't trade play I, as a Democrat. I wouldn't trade places and instead wish that I had the GOP crosswind instead of what we're seeing on the Democratic side. If President Biden does not seek reelection, is Vice President Harris the heir apparent? I would say not the heir apparent. I would say the favorite. Um, somebody who is in that role um, is, is going to be the favorite. Um, I, I don't think there's an heir apparent um, just in the sense of, you know, I have a lot of very talented colleagues, people who are governors, people who are senators, people who are House members who are think, would think about it. And, you know, nobody deserves to have cold water poured on them at this time. But I would say that a sitting vice president, yes, would be the favorite. But if I hear you correctly, you're saying she should not assume, and I know we're doubling hypotheticals here, always dangerous for people in your position, always rapturous for people in my position. But if Vice Pre if President Biden were not to seek re-election, you're saying, if I hear you correctly, that the vice president would be the favorite, but would not necessarily assume she would go unchallenged. Um, and, and in fact, look, I, I'm, I'm a friend of the vice president, and I'm a supporter of the vice president. And she would not assume in any kind of a complacent way that, you know, um, there's just a completely clear path for me. She has not been successful in politics by just assuming things were going to go her way. She's been successful by working really hard and creating her own luck. And that's the kind of person that Kamala Harris is. So I think she would understand um, that the, the sitting vice president's role is one that, you know, would, would make you a favorite. But being a favorite is not the same thing as being the heir apparent. And Kamala Harris is one smart uh, public servant. She understands it already. But let's just play this out for one more second, Senator. Wouldn't it be a difficult conversation for the Democratic Party to have in public if the first African-American woman to ever be vice president were to say, I will be a candidate for president because President Biden is not running? And others in the party would say, well, we need to challenge you anyway. Wouldn't that create a little bit of awkwardness? You, you, you omit a very critical fact, Major. It's, it's not the, quote, party that makes this decision. It's individuals, <laughs> True enough. <laughs> individuals who make a decision about whether they're going to run or not. And let me share a secret with you about a lot of people in politics. Their ambition level is very high. And occasionally that's justified. <laughs> um, but there, there, are, there are a lot of people who look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know what, I could be a really good president. And they tend to make, you know, ha having, look, I've never run for president, but I've been very close to two people who have. Barack Obama, I was early on that campaign and worked hard to make sure yep. he won Virginia. Hillary Clinton, I worked hard for before I was added to the ticket and saw it. Um, 
people, um, they tend to make this decision if they're going to run um, based 85% on whether they think they have something to offer to the country and about 15% based on well, what are other people going to do. But, but the, the driving factor is whether somebody believes I have something to offer the country right now. And um, so um, any decision about people getting into the race is fundamentally their own assessment of what they have to offer. So uh, I'm going to make a cultural, pop cultural reference that about one-tenth of one percent of this audience will get. Uh, As Groucho Marx might say, you said the magic word, Senator Kane, Hillary Clinton. Can you imagine a scenario if President Biden were not to pursue re-election where Hillary Clinton would run again? Your former room, your running mate? I, I, I don't think so. Um, again, can you imagine a scenario? Well, I have a very fertile imagination. So, but if you're asking me, do I think in the realm of likely, I would likely say- Likely or probable. I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't think likely or- You would say no. No, I, I just, I don't see that right now. Um, but again, uh, you know, I think I'm monomaniacal about November, 2022 and not engaging in a whole lot mm-hmm. of speculation beyond it. I think that this, this election is, is about as existential as a midterm gets. Um, and while a few months ago it looked really tough for us, and it's still tough if you use historic norms about midterms, we have a path to do well, and we need to really, really floor it and try to do well in November. So assess the House of Representatives for my audience, Senator. Virginia will be in a couple of districts, kind of a crossroads. And Virginia was an early indicator in 2013 with Glenn Youngkin's victory over Terry McAuliffe, kind of a warning sign for Democrats, flashing red warning sign about some of the underlying cultural politics. How do you assess Virginia and Democrats' potential, seemingly a long shot potential of holding on to the House majority? Yeah, well, I, I actually don't think the Virginia election was a big red flash what we've done in Virginia is we've moved from one of the most reliably red states in the country when I got into politics to a battleground state that's trending blue. But we never have thought of ourselves we're a blue state now. Glenn Youngkin ran an adroit campaign at a time when he had all the tailwind behind him. Joe Biden's numbers were down. There were all kinds of concerns. Glenn Youngkin had not been in office. There was no record to attach to him. He had near unlimited resources. And guess what? He won Virginia by 1.8 points with everything going his way. The, the, the last two Republicans who won the Virginia governorship both won by double digits. So I don't view a 1.8% win when everything's going your way as like a big dramatic sea change. But but we'll, we'll test the proposition this November. As you point out, there are 11 House seats in Virginia. Currently, Democrats have seven. Republicans have four. When I got into this major, Democrats had three and Republicans had had, had had eight. So we switched it pretty dramatically. But there are three Democratic Congresswomen who all came in when I ran for re-election in 2018. We ran a coordinated campaign together. They all have had redistricting, changed their districts a little bit. And that means that we are really focusing on those races. Here's what I believe. If we come out of Senator, I'm going to stop you right there because I don't want to cut you off because I have to run to break. When we come on the other side of the break, more on that political answer, Virginia and House of Representatives writ large with our guest, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. Back in one second. (sighs) 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Continuing that grabber we left you with, that cliffhanger, Senator Kane assessing Virginia House of Representatives races and the nation as a whole. Go ahead, Senator. Well, um, Major, as you and I were chatting, there are three Democratic congresswomen up for election in Virginia in districts that are competitive that change slightly with redistricting. Um, and we're working really hard on those races. Neither Senator Warner nor I are on the ballot, so we can spend our time helping these great congresswomen. If we come out of Election Day, we went into it 7-4 Democratic, we come out of it 7-4 Democratic, I think that will suggest that it's going to be a good night, not just for Virginia Democrats, but Democrats nationally. What, what you do have in the House that I'm not, you know, granularly um, familiar with is how much redistricting in the different states changed their congressional maps. I know what it did in Virginia. I have the benefit of being a senator. I never have to worry about redistricting. I just got to appeal to everybody in my state. So, but in some states, the redistricting might've made it a little bluer, might've made it a little redder. I'm not so up on that, but I, my gut tells me Virginia is still enough of a battleground. If we come out of November and we're still 7-4 Democratic, I think that's going to mean that Dems are going to have a good night all across the country. In the Senate, do you expect this fall there to be a vote on federal legislation to protect same-sex marriage? And if so, do you expect it to pass? It, it's a, that's a great question, Major. I think we're getting close to it. As you know, every Democrat will vote to essentially provide this federal guarantee that you can marry whom you choose, codifying the Obergefell decision. Um, every, every Democrat will vote for it. And we have some Republicans who will, too. About four or five Republicans have declared they would vote uh, in, to do that. But we need 10. So will we get 10? Um, Senator Schumer has made it pretty plain that we're going to call this up but, but he, he tends to time things. I don't want to call it up prematurely if there's votes out there on the table that we can still get. So I know he's working with a, a number of senators to try to determine when the best timing is. Um, I do think it would be an enormously illustrative vote, even if we fall short. So my inclination would be we should have that vote even if we fall short, but we shouldn't have it prematurely if there's still votes out on the table that we can coax to do the right thing. So you made a reference to this earlier, Senator, the operation that led to the death of Ayman al-Zawahari in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, That is regarded by the administration and many who worked in the counterterrorism field since 9-11 as a full-on success, carried out under authorities granted right after 9-11. And you, for my audience's benefit, have long wanted to be a wanted the U.S. government through the Congress to rewrite the authorization for the use of military force. So it's clearer and more precise about what this war against terror is and isn't and in which places it is authorized. How do you align these two? Um, you, you are very correct, Major. Um, I believe that that 9-11 authorization 
which has now been used to not only go after the perpetrators of the 9-11 attack, Al-Qaeda, but groups that had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda in countries all over the world needs to be dramatically constrained. I don't think it needs to be eliminated. And under any constraint, the Al-Zawahiri attack fits within what Congress was intending when it acted in September of 2001. But the, the problem is the authorization is just too open-ended. So I'm engaged right now in three different efforts. One, and we may get a vote on this um, in September, October, repeal the Iraq war authorizations. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war authorizations, October of, of 2002. Iraq is now a security partner of the United States, not an enemy. We should repeal the 91 and 02 authorizations. Secondly, redraft the 2001 authorization to narrow it down to terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and not have it so open-ended in scope, in time, in geography, and who we're authorized to take military action against. We're still a ways away from that. I don't, I don't know that we're going to be having a, a vote on a, on a version of this that the administration and Congress agree on anytime soon. The third thing I'm trying to do is rewrite the War Powers Act of 1974 because it, it, the, that act was well-intended but it had some problems with it that have caused no president to fully follow it and no Congress to fully follow it of either party. And I have a proposal called the War Powers Consultation Act, which I think would redraw it and lead to better consultation between the president and Congress over the most solemn decision that we should ever make, which is whether to go to war. You also made reference to the Inflation Reduction Act. Republicans in their talking points, as you well know, say it's not gonna reduce inflation. And it will probably add to inflation. They point to economic analysis that suggests that. You voted for it. All Democrats did in the Senate. It's likely to pass the House. The president will sign it. Are you, are you prepared to say that, yes, this act will reduce inflation and you'll set your political future on that basis, or at least partially? A- a- absolutely, Major. I'm, I'm glad to do that. Um, I, I Look, I agree with this piece of the analysis. This bill is not a magic wand that you wave it and the inflation rate automatically goes down. But there are elements to this bill that will be really, really good on people's pocketbooks. Give you an example. Um, Monthly costs for insulin for the millions of seniors on Medicare who use insulin will be capped at $35. That is a huge savings for people. Um, Your out-of-pocket costs, if you're on Medicare for prescription drugs, will be capped at $2,000 annually. That's a huge saving for millions of people whose out-of-pocket costs now exceed that. And within a few years, we'll start negotiated pricing for prescription drugs under the Medicare program, and that will also bring prices down. Um, so what, we, we also extend premium support for people buying health insurance on the exchanges. The uninsured rate in the United States right now, Major, is the lowest it's ever been in the history of the United States because we increased premium support in the American Rescue Plan. We're going to continue that for another three years. When you make health insurance less expensive, more people get health insurance. So in some key areas, energy costs, prescription drugs, health insurance costs, yes, we're bringing prices down. And then the fact that the bill is a deficit reducer is also going to have some significant effect over the long term in helping us deal with inflation. Yeah, and look, I'll stay... Um, I'm not up for an election again until 2024, but I'm sure that's going to be an issue. Did it did it work or didn't? And I'm very, very glad to go to the people on that one. And in 30 seconds, on the 
renewable energy side of the Inflation Reduction Act, what are you predicting? Um, look, in Virginia, this matters a lot. We weren't a big leader in renewable energy, but now we're accelerating toward fast on offshore wind. That, that, that is going to bring energy costs down. Moreover, since the United States had never really done offshore wind, none of the components were being manufactured in the United States. The first offshore wind component manufacturing now is going to be done in Portsmouth, Virginia. We're going to bring energy costs down, but we're also going to create a new manufacturing industry in Virginia and in the United States that will that will employ a lot of people. And I'm very excited about that. That's the voice of Tim Kaine, Democrat, junior senator from the Commonwealth of Virginia. I'm going to say goodbye to everyone on our radio audiences, podcast platforms, CBS News streaming, and of course, Paramount Plus. We'll see you on The Takeout next week. I'm Major Garrett. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.